The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. love to begin a worship service with baptism. <clears throat> One of my favorite things to do. And I was reflecting on my conversation with Jerry on Easter Sunday after church as we talked about what the Lord was doing in his life. And Jerry said something to me that day that I'll never forget. We were talking about how the Lord had been um, sort of working on his heart and speaking to him over time. And, And I don't know if you even remember this, Jerry, but he said to me, he said, I've known for some time that I needed to come to Christ. He said, but my feet just wouldn't move. And I, I thought that was such a beautiful description of what it's like when you're in that moment, when, when God opens your eyes to your sin and you realize that your only hope is Christ and you need to lay down your life and run to Him. It's a hard thing to do. And sometimes your feet just don't want to move. And that may be some of you out there this morning who for some time have been hearing the gospel. Uh, people have been sharing it with you privately. You've been coming maybe to church services like this and hearing it. And uh, for whatever reason, your feet have not yet moved. Maybe today is the day that your feet should move as well. I'll be in the worship, in the sort of the welcome center right after church this morning. I'd love to talk with you about your faith, if that is a description of where you are today. Uh, let's give attention to First Timothy chapter three, beginning in verse one, and we'll read through verse seven. The Apostle Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. I think it stands to reason that without godly leadership... A church is doomed to, at best, mediocrity, and at worst, chaos and corruption. And if you've been around church life very long, maybe some of you who've grown up in church life in various places at various times, you've seen the reality of that statement in your experience. You've been in places where you've been in churches where the leadership was not godly. And because of leadership not being godly, the church was at best mediocre. And at worst, the church that was constantly ripe with chaos and corruption and problems and challenges. I think one of the greatest challenges in the lives of believers and in the lives of churches is being wise in the selection of those who will lead you. Many churches uh, fail to consider the biblical qualifications for church leadership, and because they do, they end up with all sorts of problems. 
Churches sometimes will select leaders based on who's most successful at business, who maybe has the most say in the life of the church. Maybe they select people who have the most money or give the most money to the church. But we need to understand that a man doesn't qualify to lead in the body of Christ simply because he's wealthy, simply because he's a great salesperson, simply because he's vocal, simply because he's just been around for a long time. Or even because he has some sort of natural innate leadership ability. None of those things in particular qualify a man to be a leader in the house of God. A man is to lead in God's church because primarily he is at heart a man of God. It really doesn't have anything else to do with money or wealth or popularity or vocality or academic preparation or any of those things. Some of those things may prove helpful But at the end of the day, they don't even rise into the top 20 things that need to be considered when selecting those who are responsible to lead in God's church. The primary ingredient is holiness. It's holiness. Everything else falls way down the line somewhere. And holiness isn't something that any of us are born with. It's something that we develop. It's something that the Holy Spirit develops in us as he sanctifies us and does his work throughout a lifetime of faithfulness. And that's why when we look to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we begin to look at the qualifications for elders, the qualifications for pastors. We find that Paul is is absolutely focused on a leader's character rather than on his skill set. He's laser-focused on who a man is more than what his function will be. And it tells us something that we need to understand right at the outset. A man is qualified to lead in the house of God because of who he is, not because of what he does. It's about the heart. It's about the character. It's about the integrity of the man. And it's important for us all to think about these things because the spiritual temperament of a church will never rise above the spiritual temperament of its leaders. And the spiritual temperature, if you will, of the leadership is going to set the ceiling for the church. The church is never going to become more than what its leaders are. And that's why it's important to choose godly leaders. That's why... Elder elections are a critical piece of church life for us, an important part of church life for us, one of the most important parts of church life. It's why as a congregation we cannot take uh, sort of lightly and casually the responsibility to elect those who will lead. And that's why we need a very clear working familiarity with what we're going to look at this morning. It's particularly important to us because I've come prepared this morning from on behalf of our elders, to present to you two names that we are going to submit to you and are, in fact, this morning submitting to you for consideration to serve as elders in our congregation. Uh, I'm giving you these names because these are men that we have been in in process with for for some time, uh, evaluating their life and their character and their integrity, meeting with them, talking with them, interacting with them about the Word of God, and about their lives. And we have vetted them as well as we feel we can, and we are prepared to present them to you uh, for evaluation. And so this morning I want to tell you that we uh, are going to be presenting to you right now uh, Jim Pitts and Britt Stokes to serve as our next two elders on our team. Uh, Britt has been with us for a shorter period of time than Jim, 
But Britt is an ordained pastor. He's been thoroughly vetted and evaluated by many before us. And his skill set and his character, I think, are already very clear to you if you've had any opportunity to navigate life with him up to this point. But I hope that he will be the busiest man in Charleston in the next six weeks as you all fill up his calendar with opportunities to have coffee or lunch or breakfast or whatever there's an opening for uh, for you to spend time with him and talking to him and getting to know him and, and looking at his life through the lens of what we're going to talk about this morning. And, of course, Jim and Trudy have been with us for quite some number of years. So if you've been a part of Grace on the Ashley, you've had plenty of opportunity uh, to navigate with Jim. Uh, and you've seen him and his work of ministry in the life of our body, how he cares for and shepherds our folks already. And so I don't think that part of life is in question with him. But you should, over these next six weeks, uh, spend some time with Jim. Get an opportunity to have coffee with him and talk with him and get to know him and think about him in regards to what we're going to talk about in the text of 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. Because in about six weeks' time, we're going to have an opportunity for you to, to elect, to choose. Because at the end of the day, the congregation always has final oversight over its leaders and always should. You have the responsibility of evaluating these men and those of us who currently serve as elders all the time based on what the qualifications for eldership are. And so I trust that over these weeks you'll do that. Um, I've forgotten the date off the top of my head, but uh, in about a month from now we're going to have an opportunity for these guys to share testimony uh, in in a public meeting for you to be able to come and hear them speak publicly and talk about their life and testimony. But you have the responsibility as a congregation to go to them and get to know them and make sure that when it comes time to choose elders that you can make an informed decision well. And we're allotting you plenty of time to do that. But we need to look this morning at what, how in the world are you to do that task? What is it that you're to be looking at and how are you to evaluate and what do, what do elders do? We need to talk about that some this morning. And just as a, at the outset, I'll tell you, I've got a handout that's going to be in the back of the, the sanctuary this morning. It should be on the sound booth or somewhere in the back available to you. It'll be a summary of the qualifications for elders for you to take with you so that You know, we're going to fly this morning to move through this text, but I want to give you something in hand that you can take and be praying through and thinking about as you consider uh, electing and selecting new elders uh, in a month and a half or so. So you don't have to write furiously. I've got to print it for you. Is that you're welcome. I'm happy to do that for you. So Timothy needs to hear about elders and Paul needs to write to him about it because it's a clear problem in the church at Ephesus. We've already seen that as we work through the first couple of chapters. The church did not do a good job in selecting elders. It's clear that the church is in chaos and Timothy is having to try and settle the chaos. And a goodly portion of the chaos roots back to some elders who shouldn't have probably been elders to begin with. And they've gone sideways and some of them are teaching uh, false doctrine in the church and spreading it throughout the body. Others of them are stirring up conflict and confusion in the life of the body. And as we look through First Timothy chapter 3, you'll see those are both clear and present violations of what it means to be qualified, qualified to serve as an elder. But that's what's going on in Ephesus. And so Paul has to write to the church and to Timothy to remind them, here is What qualifies a man to be an elder? And if he doesn't meet these qualifications, he has no business being in the service of the church in that regard. And that's what 1 Timothy chapter 3 is all about. Now, two weeks ago, we did the last part of chapter 2 that dealt with 
issues related to worship and women, modesty and leadership. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, you may recall if you were here, Paul wrote to Timothy this. <clears throat> I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. We don't have time to re-preach that whole message. Uh, you can go back and it's online and you can hear the whole thing in the broader context. But it's important for us to remember as we move into chapter 3, because the two primary qualifications for elders that set them apart from any other office or leadership responsibility in the church is they're the ones who are primarily tasked with teaching and preaching, and they are the ones who are entrusted with the authority to rule and to lead in the body. And so in light of 1 Timothy 2, chapter 12, it's clear to us those two things are not in the purview of the ladies in the church. It's not because the men are smarter. It's not because they're naturally more gifted. It's not because they're more qualified. It's not because they're better communicators. It's not because they can do it better. Paul takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis, and he roots this in the order of creation. It's not because of any of those things. It's because God has established an order in the home and in the church, and within that order, men and women have particular roles that are equally critical and equally important and equally valuable in the life of the church, however they are different. And so eldership, when we talk about that, is a category for men. So what are elders and what do they do? We begin in verse 1. Excuse me. This is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of of overseer, he desires a noble task. We need to zoom out to the New Testament for a moment. And we need to talk about really three offices that, that, that sort of emerge from Scripture in the life of the church over history. There are really only three offices that we see of leadership. The first is the office of apostle. If you read the New Testament from the beginning, you see people who are apostles. If you grew up in, in, in Sunday school, you probably learned the song. There are 12 disciples Jesus called to help. And it's, I have to sing the song to remember their names still to this day. But it's how I do it. <clears throat> Thank God for that Sunday school teacher who ever taught me that song. I'll never sing it for you because I don't want you running for the doors. But... There were 12 apostles. There ended up being 14 because we know Judas Iscariot betrayed the Lord. He was replaced by a man by the name of Matthias. And we know the apostle Paul is identified as an apostle. But those are the only apostles that we have in Scripture. To be an apostle, you had to have the gifts of apostleship. You had to be called specifically by Jesus himself. You had to be a personal witness to the resurrected Jesus. You had to receive direct instruction from the Lord. And you were uniquely empowered to record Holy Scripture on his behalf. There is nobody living these days who meets those qualifications. It's rather confusing because if you look across the landscape of the, the church today, you'll find churches who have people that are in their leadership called apostle this and apostle that and apostle this and apostle that. I have no idea what in the world that means in those contexts. But it doesn't mean what the New Testament teaches about apostles. Because no one living today, to my knowledge, has personally witnessed the resurrected Jesus, been personally commissioned by him, and given the authority to do the the works of an apostle and to write Holy Scripture. So nobody qualifies. So that office was temporary, and it no longer exists. There are two others. The office of elder sometimes called overseer, sometimes called pastor. We'll talk about sort of those terms in a moment, but there's three Greek words that refer to the same office. There's the word episkopos, probably sounds to you similar to a denomination, the Episcopal Church. 
Episcopos is sometimes translated overseer. If you have a King James Version, it might say bishop. Um, it's a word that has a particular sort of a, of a meaning, overseer, bishop. There's another word, poimeno, which is the word for shepherd or pastor. And then there's a third word, presbyteros, also sounds like a denomination, the Presbyterians, right? And that's the word that's usually translated into English, elder. I don't have time to go too far into this, but look at Acts chapter 20, verse 17 and following. I think this will be enough to sort of establish the premise that the Bible uses these three words, these three Greek words, translated into these three English words sort of interchangeably for the same office doing the same functions. We see this in Acts chapter 20 and verse 17 and following. This is in the context of Ephesus, by the way, as well. And so uh, Luke writes, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for whom? For the elders of the church. And he says to them later on, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And then he says, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock and on and on. But he's talking to the same group of people. And in this exact same context, these same people are called elders. They're called overseers and they're also called shepherds. But it's the same group doing the same thing. The emphasis is just on different things. The word overseer sort of refers to one of the functions that elders play, which is overseeing the flock, if you will, that leadership role. The term elder tends to focus on sort of life stage and experience and talks to the maturity of the men who are in that role. And that term shepherd, where he says be shepherds, is sort of a loving and gracious metaphor uh, for the primary work of the elders, which is the care for the people of the church, to shepherd them, to love them, to care for them. And so elders, sometimes called overseers, sometimes called shepherds, are the people who are responsible for teaching, leading, and protecting the flock. There's a third office, which we'll talk about next week, the office of deacon, which in some ways, as we work through chapter 3, you'll see similarities in the qualifications However, uh, there are some unique differences, but deacons, in short, are the lead servants of the church. They're the ones who are responsible for overseeing the practical ministry that takes place in the body, the practical ministry. And we'll look more at that next week. So what are elders charged with doing? Well, I would tell you, you can look to a lot of places in the New Testament to find elders referred to. I just don't have time to walk through all of that with you this morning. Um, but look in the book of Acts. You can find in, in the book of Titus, James chapter 5. When someone is sick, James tells us you're to call the elders and you're to pray for those who are sick. First Peter chapter 5 is another place you can look. But what are elders charged with doing in the body? Well, three things. Elders are responsible for directing the affairs of the church. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 5, although we haven't gotten there yet, where Timothy, or excuse me, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The passage we just looked at in Acts 20, verse 28, uh, he says, uh, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church, which he obtained with his own blood. First Peter chapter 5, he's told, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. 
It's this whole, this whole sort of realm of responsibility that falls under this leadership responsibility to direct the affairs of the church, to give oversight to the work and the ministry and the mission and the focus of the church. It's to make decisions. It's to provide general leadership. It's to, it's to, to, to lead the church forward. It's like a shepherd who, who leads his flock and the sheep are to follow the shepherds. It's a leadership responsibility. They direct the affairs of the church. Second thing they do is teach and preach. One of the main qualifications we'll see this morning for eldership is a man has to be able to teach. He has to be able to read the Word of God, comprehend the Word of God, and communicate the Word of God to other people. He's got to be able to teach. And he has to be able to teach because that's one of the main responsibilities of those who fill the role of elder. And it's the one criteria that sets them apart from deacons. Now, we'll talk about this again in a moment, but we need to note here when we talk about the teaching and preaching responsibility of elders that not all elders have the same degree of giftedness in this area. That isn't the issue. Every elder doesn't have to be a a public preacher who gets on the platform on Sunday morning and preaches. Elders, though, as a baseline, have to have the capability, the ability to read and understand God's Word and communicate it to other people with clarity. They have to be able to do that. That may be in a one-on-one setting, that may be in a small group setting, that may be in a discipleship setting, that may be in a home setting. It may be on the platform like I'm doing right now. It could be in any of those realms or some combination of those things. But as a baseline, it's the elders who are responsible for the teaching and preaching ministry that takes place in the life of the church. And then the third thing elders do is they protect and guard the flock. It's that shepherd illustration, again, where the shepherd has responsibility over the sheep. He understands, like Paul was, uh, was talking about in, the, in, in Acts, where we saw him saying, you know, savage wolves are coming into the flock. They're going to come from within. They're going to come from without. And it's the elder's responsibility to protect that body, to protect them from harm, to protect from doctrinal error, to pr- protect from those who would seek to, to stir up division and wreck the church. So the elders are the ones who are responsible for that. So when you think of elders, what do elders do? What should elders be doing in the life of the church? These are the three things that should be on the plates of the elders on a regular, regular basis. And Paul says, Timothy, the man who aspires to eldership, he, he, he desires a noble task. And I think it's important before we jump in the qualifications to understand what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, somebody who wants to be an elder, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to desire to serve the body of Christ in the role of an elder. But you notice that Paul doesn't mention anything about some sort of a mystical, magical calling from the Lord when he talks about this. He doesn't say, you know, if anyone desires to be an elder, he sits around and waits for the phone to ring and God's voice to speak and say, thou shalt be an elder. He does nothing mystical about it. He says it's a good thing to desire this. He speaks in language of aspiration and desire. It's a good thing for a man to desire to serve the Lord in this regard. It is a a noble desire. A common question I have asked me over time as a pastor is, how is it that a person becomes a pastor and a pastor is just an elder? How is it that a person becomes one? Well, it begins with a desire. He wants to be one. In his heart, there's a desire to serve the Lord in that way. 
That desire then becomes sort of um, um, uh, obvious to those around him. It's, it's confirmed by sort of an observable skill set. I mean, if a man wants to be an elder, but it's clear that he doesn't have the skills to be an elder or the character to be an elder, then it's a good desire, but it doesn't go anywhere beyond desire. It has to be followed by an observable skill set or potential. And he has to then live a life that meets the qualifications that we find here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus 1. And then at the end of the day, his character and his integrity has to be confirmed by the local church body who says, yes, it's a good desire that you have. We've observed your life and your character and your integrity, and we affirm you in that role in the life of the church. That's how a person becomes an elder. Whether it be a vocational elder or whether it be a layman who serves as an elder. It begins with a desire. That the Lord verifies with a, a character and an integrity and a skill set. And the church then affirms. William Perkins, old Puritan writer, says this. How can you know for yourself whether God wants you to go into the ministry or not? You must ask both your own conscience and the church. Your conscience must judge of your willingness and the church of your ability. I think he's on to something there. You know, I, it, there, was no, there was no magic in my life when I made the conscious decision to give my life to full-time Christian ministry. I looked back over my life for a long time and I could see evidence of the Lord's calling in my life. And, and what I mean by that is there was a skill set that he was building and there was a character and an integrity that was observable by other people. I felt inadequate, but I wanted to be a chemical engineer. Who knew? I love math and science. Who knew? I do nothing with math or science. Except tutor high school students every once in a while with what I remember. But there was a very distinct point in my life where the Lord sort of changed very distinctly my desires. And it was when I was a freshman in college. I can remember very vividly sitting in my dorm room and realizing, you know what? I don't want to do the things I used to want to do. God has birthed in me a new desire. And that desire is not what I naturally have desired up to this point. But it's a desire to serve Him with my life. So I went and talked to my pastor and I said, I don't know what's going on. I used to love numbers and, you know, periodic tables. And it just kind of lost its luster. I really want to serve the Lord. And that set off sort of a sequence of events that, that led through a church giving affirmation and confirmation of that. I think sometimes when I hear people talk about eldership, they talk about it in sort of mystical language that I'm frankly just uncomfortable with. Because I think it leaves people who have a desire and a skill set and integrity and character and would be affirmed by the church sitting around on their hands waiting for something magical to happen, for some fairy dust to fall out of the sky or for the phone to ring or some you know, weird mystical thing before they feel like God is now calling them. Paul says if you desire it, it's a good thing. If you aspire to this, that's a noble aspiration. So what does qualify somebody? Well, he gives us a good list here of things that qualify somebody in that process. And as we look at these qualifications, we need to make note of the fact that every one of them in the Greek text is in the present tense. It's all in the present tense. None of it is in past tense and none of it is in the future tense. 
Paul isn't saying that we're to anticipate what somebody might become down the road or might not become down the road. And we're not to go dig too far back into life and, and try and pull up anything we can pull up that would disqualify a man however far in the past. It's all in the present tense. It indicates a present state of being. The issue here, and this is what's notable as we think about the present tense in the text in front of us, is that we're to evaluate this issue and ask this question. Is this man's life currently marred by some sort of a defective character which disqualifies him? When we look at his life and we see the track record that we have in front of us, is there a mar in the character? Is there some blight on the character? Is there something about his life and his track record that gives us reason to pause about his integrity or his character in these particular areas? And again, the focus is on integrity and character. There's only one capability that's mentioned and that's able to teach. The rest is observable patterns of character and integrity. And consistency, we could say, even. His life matching his doctrine. And I would also pause to say that perfection is not the issue here. And I guess that's what I was getting at in talking about it being present. Every elder is like you. They're fallen human beings, have clay feet, who make mistakes, who don't always get their faith right at every turn. None of us are Christ himself. And so as you think about who you want to elect as elders, you need to keep a, a healthy balance in your mind of, of the reality that we need to have a high standard, but we're not looking for perfection in people because nobody qualifies at the level of perfection. And there's two errors to avoid in this. Really, one is setting the bar too high. And what I mean by setting the bar too high is setting standards that go beyond what we have in the text. We don't add to what we have in the text. The text becomes the standard. We don't add to it, and we don't take away from it. I see this sometimes by places that will add things like academic requirements to qualify a man for an eldership. There may be, it may be important to have some academic expectations of somebody who's going to be a vocational preacher, but as a baseline for elders, that's raising the bar too high, and it takes it beyond what the Scripture calls for. The other balance that we need to be careful of is not lowering the bar too low. We can, and I've seen this happen on many occasions in various seasons of church life, where people say, well, we're evaluating people and we see people with obvious flaws of character and obvious track records that cause us to question the characteristics here. And we just sort of rationalize it away by saying, oh, but he's a good guy and nobody's perfect. Let's just, you know, see how it goes. That's lowering the bar too low. We don't do that. And so we find a healthy balance somewhere in between those two things. The question that we're asking, I think, is this. Does the candidate currently have a lengthy, observable pattern of character, integrity, consistency that serves as a model for the congregation to follow? Does he have a, a current, lengthy, observable pattern of character and integrity that serves as a model that the church can follow? That's what we're asking particularly in these areas that we have listed here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so he begins here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, after saying that this is a, 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 something, a, a good desire, a good aspiration, he tells us this whole list, the overseer he begins, must be above reproach. Now again, there's a bunch of these, so we can't camp on them, we just have to fly. But both Timothy, excuse me, both Paul... In writing to Timothy and writing to Titus, he uses some form of this same characteristic above reproach. You may see in your Bible it translated as blameless. 
And this term serves as an overarching term that, uh, over which all of the other things in the list sort of elucidate, if you will. It is the overarching term that is explained by all the terms that follow. And so, in other words, it's like Paul is saying, Timothy, he needs to be above reproach. He needs to be blameless, particularly in the following areas. And he goes into his list. This word blameless or above reproach does not mean perfect, nor does it refer to particular sins committed before a man has matured as a believer. The idea is, does he have a sustained reputation for a life that is characteristic of blamelessness? The word literally means not being able to be held. The idea is if he was arrested for bad character, could he be convicted? If he was arrested for poor integrity, would there be enough evidence in his track record to convict that this is a man whose integrity is poor? So Paul is saying he can't be that kind of man. To be blameless is to be the kind, you can arrest me for bad character, you can arrest me for bad integrity, but the, 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 the prevailing, lengthy, observable track record of my life does not give evidence of that. That's a man who's above reproach. That's a man who is blameless. His life can't be marred by sinful patterns and sinful attitudes and sinful habits. There's not an obvious defect in his character that causes us to question his integrity. There's not some blight on his life and his lifestyle that communicates to other people that, yes, you can be a leader in the church and still live in a life of unbroken sinfulness. He has to be above those things. And he has to be above those things, particularly in the following areas. He goes on to list this. An elder has to be the husband of one wife. The word husband and the word wife here translated into English could also be translated uh, man and woman. Perhaps better translated that. The idea being conveyed here is that he is a one-woman man or a one-wife kind of guy. Now, you can read until your eyeballs pop out, um, commentators who try to explain exactly what they think Paul meant here. There are a number of things that you'll come across. You'll come across those who say, well, what Paul is really saying is that he has to be a man who's just got one wife at a time. And they would argue that, you know, he's not a, polygam- a polygamist. Isn't that the right word? Is that the right word, polygamist? That's a, I, I, thought, I thought I had the wrong word for a minute there. Polygamist, I thought, ooh, what was that word I just said? Um, yeah, he's just have one wife at a time. He's not to be married to multiple women at one time. The problem is polygamy wasn't really an issue in Ephesus, and it's just sort of a strange way of looking at that text. Although it's true, an elder should not be married to more than one woman at a time. We would agree. It's probably not what Paul has in mind. Others would say, well, what Paul's arguing is that he can't ever be remarried. If he's been married before under any circumstances, well, the scriptures give us on several levels situations where a man is permitted to be married a second time. So that cannot be what he's talking about. Some would argue that what he's saying here is a prohibition against anyone who's divorced from ever serving as an elder. Again, we interpret scripture by other scripture and the scriptures lay out for us at least a couple of sort of situations where a person is told that that they can walk away from a divorce and be no longer under bondage. So he can't be talking about that. Some argue that he's uh, sort of eliminating single men. He said, you listen, you have to be the husband of one wife. And if you're single, too bad, so sad, go get a wife. The problem with that is Paul was single and an elder. So 
be some self-condemnation going on there. I don't think any of those are what Paul has in mind here. What he's talking about when he says a one-woman man or a one-wife kind of guy is, is like he is talking about in everything else in this list. He's talking about a man's character, not his social status or his external condition. It's an idiom for marital faithfulness, for sexual fidelity, for self-control in the area of lust. He's saying that if he's a man who's married, he's solely devoted to the wife that the Lord has given him. He's not a ladies' man. He doesn't have wandering eyes. If he's married, he's devoted to his wife. She has all of his love and faithfulness. He's not wishing you were with some other woman. He's not uh, Googling other women in any form of the word Google. He loves his wife. His eyes are for her. His heart is for her. His commitment is to her. His love, desire, his thoughts are only for the wife that God's given him. Uh, Permit me to go to Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 15. Because in Proverbs chapter 5 we have a, a wise father sitting down with his young son. And he's talking to him about the importance of sexual fidelity. And I love the way he says it because it paints a picture that makes sense to me. He says to his son this, son, drink water from your own cistern. Now, this is an analogy. You get it? Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Pause, man. That's Father's Day. It's a great day. Tell your wife, you are a graceful doe. A lovely dear. You tell her that at lunch today. She'll love it. He says, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. And here's what I want you to be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. It's a beautiful way of talking to his son about saying, son, drink from your own cistern. The Lord has provided from you everything you need for refreshment and joy in your life. Why should you look somewhere else? Be intoxicated. I love that. Always in her love. Don't go looking for somewhere else. It's essentially the point that Paul is making here to Timothy when he says, that's the kind of man an elder is to be. If he's a married man, that's who he is. You don't look at him and watch his behavior and wonder about his sexual fidelity. If he's a single man, you understand that he's not a player. He's not out there chasing women. But he's sexually pure. And Paul lists this first in both both lists, 1 Timothy and in Titus. And he does it, I think, because he understands that, that it's probably the primary area where men end up disqualifying themselves at points in their life. And recent history in the American evangelical church really shows us that because the landscape is littered with pastors all the time who are being exposed as having affairs on their wives, doing all sorts of things that are sexually licentious and shameful and embarrassing to their families and to their churches. And so it's an important characteristic. If we're going to have folks that are elders, we need to be able to understand and have confidence that they're people who are sexually pure. If they're married, they love their wives. Second thing he says is they have to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. This can be sort of a sobriety and use of wine, but he's going to talk about that in a moment. But what he's talking about when he says the elder has to be sober-minded is he's talking about mental sobriety. He's a clear thinker. 
His mind and his thoughts are not clouded and tainted by other things. His, his judgment isn't clouded. He doesn't have a twisted sort of way of thinking. He has a balanced kind of judgment. He doesn't have some sort of a personal disorder that, that, that makes his judgment sort of out of whack. He's stable. He's circumspect. He's clear-headed. He's mentally, he's emotionally stable and level. That's what sober-minded means. Sometimes it's translated it's temperate. Temperate. That's what it means. He's a clear thinker. Self-controlled, he says, is the next thing. Prudent, sometimes translated prudent. It simply means well-disciplined, uh, ordered in his life. His life. The opposite of this word is the word chaos. And it means that his life isn't chaotic. That his life is, is, is well-disciplined. And he knows how to sort of correctly order his priorities. He's not rash in his judgment, but he's thoughtful. He's earnest. He's cautious. He's not impulsive and rash. His mind is controlled by the truth of God, not by his own fleshly desires. And his life sort of is a reflection of that reality. He's not given to excesses and rashness, but he's self-controlled. He shows evidence that his life is ordered. He goes on to use this word respectable. Respectable. And we all know what respectable means, right? He's somebody worthy of respect. He's well-behaved, he's self-controlled, he's proper, he's virtuous, he's ordered. His life and his observable character are the kind of life and character that, that garner respect. When you look at them, you say, man, that is, a, that is a man that I respect. That's a person that I look up to. That's a person that I can follow. That's what respectable means. Respect isn't always earned in perfection. We know that, and you know that. There are people that you know in your life that you respect who are not perfect people. You understand that sometimes they make mistakes, but they respond even to their mistakes with character and integrity and faithfulness. And you respect that. That makes them respectable. An elder has to be respectable. You can't lead the church if people don't respect you. He also has to be hospitable. I cannot say this word for the life of me. Hospitable. Is that right? Hospitable. He has to be a man who likes hospitality. I can say that word. And hospitality is, well, we all know what that is too, right? It's a visible expression of Christian love. It fits into sort of the larger umbrella of loving other people. It's a way of saying for a person to be an elder, they, they're, they're called to sort of give themselves lovingly and sacrificially for the flock. And you can't do that from a distance from people. You can't hide from people and be an elder. You can't do it in superficial sort of distant sort of ways. Hospitality is opening up life and opening up your home and sharing those things with other people. It's investing yourself into life-on-life living with other people. It's spending time at the coffee shop, getting to know people. It's sharing meals together, uh, whether it be at your home or at a restaurant somewhere or in somebody else's home. It's, it's that, that, that part of a person's character that says, I like people and I care about people and I want to know them and I want to love them and I want to pray for them and I want to serve them up close and personal. When the Bible speaks of hospitality, it speaks of doing it with believers, but it also speaks of hospitality to people who are outside of the faith. You could read about that in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus says, look, what good is it if you just open your home and your life to people who are just like you or your friends? What about outsiders and what about other people who are far from the Lord? They deserve hospitality too. 
And so an elder is one whose life is open. It's not closed to the people he's to lead. If elders aren't hospitable, the church won't be either. And he goes on to say they have to be able to teach. This is the clear one capability that distinguishes elders from deacons. They have to be able to teach. They have to be capable of opening God's word because they're students of God's word and understanding what it means by what it says. And they're able to sit down with anybody in the body and explain what it means to them. They have some level of being able to understand and comprehend and know God's truth. They've figured out doctrine. They're not confused and lost when it comes to doctrine. They're able to sit down with people who are struggling and communicate the truth, whether it be one-on-one or in a group or like I'm doing in a preaching sort of a way. They have to be able to do that. And again, I just mentioned not all elders are equally skilled in that. It's very clear. Uh, When you look at what the scriptures talk about with elders, it says that all elders who rule well, they deserve double honor, especially those who give attention to teaching and preaching. And so the idea is that there's a baseline of two things for all the elders. There's a baseline of all elders are responsible for ruling or leading the body at some level, and all elders are responsible as a baseline at some level for being teachers in the body. But every individual elder may be doing more or less in one or the other categories. Does that make sense? There are some who are going to be given to less public teaching and more private directing and leading. And there are going to be others who give more time and energy and effort to being public and in front of you teaching and preaching and maybe doing less of those other things. But the baseline capability of both has got to be there. And it's important because everything we do in church life flows out of the Word of God. If a man doesn't know the Word of God, he's incompetent to lead the church. Everything from counseling to trying to resolve disputes to trying to figure out which way to go in the leadership of the church, it all flows out of what the Scriptures teach. And all of the conversations about those things come from what does the Bible tell us about these things. And if a man doesn't know those things, he, can't, he has nothing to add to the conversation and a lot to take away from it. So a man has to be able to teach. He has to be able to handle the Word of God well. It says he's not to be a drunkard. He's not to be a drunkard. That's the next thing. I think we all know what a drunkard is, right? He's not to be a drunkard. The Scriptures say if you're going to be a man who's an elder, you have no business inebriating yourself with alcohol. If that's a pattern in your life and that's how you behave, then you have no business being an elder. That's clear. Alcohol. And and I think the part of the reason is, is because when a person is drunk, they can't think straight. Any of you, we're not going to raise hands or anything, but if you've been drunk, you understand what I'm talking about, right? You're drunk, you don't think like you normally think, you don't make the same decisions you would normally make. you, You do things that you wouldn't normally do. You think things that you wouldn't normally think. You evaluate life on a whole different plane than you are and do when you're sober. And all that's going to do is cause chaos in the life of a church if a man who lives like that, is an elder. No business being a drunkard. Because on a says you can't be violent, but gentle. This word violent, there's another word for it, and I love this word, it's pugnacious. Don't you just like to say pugnacious? It's a great word. Learn that word, pugnacious. The next time somebody's being like this around you, you just say, you know what, you're being pugnacious, and I don't like it. It's a word that simply means bad-tempered, irritable, out of control, a fighter. The person who, who, who would rather settle things with his fists than with a gentle conversation. 
And that person has no business being an elder. Somebody who's irritable, someone who's bad-tempered, somebody who's combative and argumentative. And it's observable. It'll show up in his life. It'll show up in the way he treats his wife and the way he treats his children. You'll see that sort of combative nature show up. Elders in the body are to be peacemakers. They're not to be fighters who are going around looking to pick a fight with somebody. You can't be a peacemaker if you're pugnacious. We're to be gentle. Elders are to be firm and to be clear. And sometimes we have to deliver a hard message that people don't want to hear. But we're to deliver it in a way that is not combative. In a way that's gentle and firm. And there is a way to be firm and gentle and not pugnacious. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That's what elders are to be with the people, not fighters. And he goes right on the heels of that of saying you can't be quarrelsome, which just simply means argumentative. He's not a, he's not a person who loves to argue. Don't you, do you meet those people in your life, people who love to argue? Do you have any of those people in your world? You know, you see them coming in the grocery store and you want to dive under the vegetable bin because you know they're going to bring up some controversial subject and want to suck you into some sort of a, an argument about it. You know, that you see them walking in church and they want to bring up, I'm the pastor, I see it this way, right? Bree, you see this. They come up and they, the first question they ask you is about some controversial theological thing. And you're like, man, I don't, can we just say hello? Or you want to argue about a doctrine or something? There's way too much of this in the evangelical world today. The blogosphere is just oozing with people who are nothing but argumentative. They're just argumentative. They love to fight and argue about something. Prove they're right and other people are wrong. Listen, nothing will destroy a team of elders more than someone who's argumentative or pugnacious. They'll wreck it and destroy the church in the meantime. Can't be a lover of money. Can't be a lover of money. Brent told, told us about that last week. He loves the Lord. His, his, pursuit, his pursuit is of the Lord. He lives with an open hand when it comes to his wealth. Manages his own household well. Well, it's a clear parallel. The household parallels the church. A man who cannot manage his own household, who doesn't have an orderly home, is not a person who's going to have an orderly church if he leads it. And so this is a part of what we evaluate. How does a man manage his home? His irresponsible Christian father, husband, household manager. He says he can't be a recent convert. Can't be a recent convert. And he gives a reason. He can't be a recent convert. He needs to be mature because if he's a recent convert and you put him in a position of authority, he can end up getting puffed up with conceit and become arrogant very quickly. And an arrogant elder is a real problem for everybody. So he can't be a new believer. There's got to be time to evaluate his life and his maturity and see it. See a visible evidence of that in his life. And then finally, the last thing he says of he has to be well thought of by outsiders. That just simply means the people who know him the best, the people that he works with, the people that he lives with, his neighbors, the people on the golf team, on the soccer team, or the basketball team, or the people that he navigates life with on a regular basis. When they look at him, they, they consider him to be a respectable person. Respectable person. I'll never forget. I had a man who was a chairman of deacons one time in my church back in history. And I was out with another man at some point during that time. And this other man said to me, I learned early in my life never to do business with that man. And I said, why? And he began to tell me stories of business dealings that were bad, that, that revealed bad character. And this person definitely did not think well 
of this man who was serving as a, as a deacon at the time. And that's the point. This is well thought of by others. He's not a person who's ripping people off in his business dealings. He's not a person who's, you know, cussing out his neighbor over the back fence because of the fence line. He's not a, he's not a person who's living a life outside of the church in a way that outsiders are saying, man, that's not the kind of person I want to be around. It's the exact opposite of that. The people we work with look at him as a person of integrity. The people that do business with him say, hey, that's an honest man, and I'll do my business with him. It's well thought of. Listen, that's a pretty comprehensive list, isn't it? And it's been a pretty long sermon, hasn't it? Like the response of song, it is. Yes, you can do that. It's fine. I understand. But we needed to move through it. We need to move through it. Um, I've given you a list. It's on that back thing that's a summary of all of these things. And you need to know these things because God is calling you in a very real way as members of this church to make some decisions in about six weeks about the two men whose names I put out there for you today. And you need to be praying about that. You need to be thinking through this list and you need to be evaluating their lives over these next weeks in light of it. And you need to be evaluating those of us who serve regularly as elders in light of these things too. And if you see deficiencies, you have a responsibility to come to us and point them out and call us on those things that we might serve you better than what we are if we are deficient in those things. Let's pray together that the Lord would grant us that kind of leadership. Lord, I pray for myself as I walk through this list because I know my own self. I am the worst sinner that I know. And as I think through this list and declare it from your word this morning, I'm reminded of ways that I fall short in in some of these categories. And, and, And I thank you for, Lord, reminding me of those things. Help me, Lord, to be better. Lord, I thank you for the team of elders that we have already in the life of our church and how well they serve this body. Thankful that our elders' meetings are not wrapped up with argumentative and combative people and foolish, silly things. That I serve with men of integrity and who have a track record, Lord, of good character in their lives. And yet, Lord, before us are two new names that we have to consider as a church. I pray that you would give us wisdom over these next six weeks as we think about these men and give us clarity and confirm in our hearts, Lord, together corporately that they should serve us in the the office of elder. But at the end of the day, Lord, as we pray about this, as we close our time together, really all of these characteristics should be characteristic of our lives as Christians in general. As we think about them, Lord, help us not to just think about others. If there are ways that we fall short of your glory in these areas, give us grace and wisdom. Forgive us for our sins and sanctify us in these areas, Lord. And we pray that for your honor and for your glory, that we might be good testimony of you to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.